Hi, I'm Klein Kusatsu. I play Vice Admiral Nakamura on Star Trek Next Generation, and you are listening to Trek Untold. Hello and welcome to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. And welcome back to the second part of my interview with Clyde Kasatsu. What started out as an innocent chat like I usually do with my guests turned into this epic career-spanning interview, and that's why I decided to break it up into two more manageable pieces. Last time, we focused a lot on his work in the 70s, but this week we pushed forward into the 80s and the 90s, and a little of Clyde's modern work too. If you listened to our previous episode with Clyde, you already heard me rattle off just a few of the 300-plus shows and films that he's worked on. So I'm not going to do that again, but I will say this week we are discussing, finally, his time on Star Trek The Next Generation as Admiral Nakamura, his role in Family Matters, starring in the breakthrough sitcom All-American Girl, and how that ties into his personal battle with alcoholism, being directed by Jonathan Frakes and Patrick Stewart, and one of the first stories we're going to get to this week, working with William Shatner across three different decades. Which, of course, if it's coming from Clyde, branches off into several other stories about the entertainment industry. I want to add also, this week the show gets a bit heavier because we discussed his experiences as an Asian-American performer in Hollywood. This also leads to his take on quote-unquote wokeness. Now, I like to get serious on Trek Untold, and this show never really shies away from getting political. But I also like to let my best to let you know what's going to happen and what to expect, and also how heavy things can get. Admittedly, I think I came into this discussion not as well as equipped as I have in the past to express myself the way I wanted. And I also didn't just want to spend the entire episode discussing this topic, so I want to preface it that some of my audience members may agree with his thoughts on the topic, while others might not. Listening to his stories and experiences, I can gather why his take is different from other people we've had on the show. So I'm hoping that no matter what your stance is on the topic, you can be open to understanding the reasons for his beliefs, which he very clearly explains. And while those may differ from mine or from yours, at least we're looking at it through a different lens. And it's never a bad thing to engage in meaningful conversations with others who share experiences that are not the same as ourselves. That's my completely non-legally binding way to say that I don't necessarily agree with some of his thoughts on the topic, but these are his experiences, and they certainly shaped how his life and career has been. So take it however you'd like, but at the very least, we're seeing things through a different perspective, and I think that's very important, at least, to consider. And it also gave me some new tools to discuss this in the future, too, which I think will be very useful for other episodes. Either way, it shouldn't take away from you enjoying his life and times, and we're going to go pretty in-depth on all sorts of things today, so no matter what, I still hope you enjoy everything we say this week. Anyway, that's enough of my rambling and disclaimers. Let's go ahead and get back to being excited, because I'm so happy to share with you now part two of my incredibly epic chat with Clyde Kasatsu. But before we begin this week's episode, if you'd like to support this show, please don't forget to follow Trek Untold on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to get the latest updates and all sorts of other fun Star Trek-related content. You can also check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash trekuntold, where you can support this show for as little as $2 a month. At higher tiers, you can check out the shows before they come out, know about my guests in advance, and even have a chance to ask them questions, among other benefits coming soon. Shout out to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions who create 3D-printed toys and prop replicas inspired by Star Trek. Their items come in all shapes and all sizes and are always amazing, but you're going to hear a little bit more about them later on in the show. If you're listening to us on iTunes or any other audio platform that allows for ratings and reviews, please leave us a 5-star rating and a positive review. If you're watching this on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to us at youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday. 
and give the video a thumbs up and a comment. Doing any of those things help keep this show growing and allow me to continue bringing you awesome guests and great conversations every single week. Now, without further ado, let's beam in this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. Well, Clyde, you've gotten to work with so many legends throughout your career. I mean, we just mentioned all the marbles early, mentioned Sean Penny, all the marbles. We didn't even mention Peter Falk, but, um, you know, so many legends that you've worked with throughout your career, even at this point, which is we're still in like the 70s here. But uh, I want to move ahead a little bit to like the 80s. And we're talking 1985 here. And that was your first time working with William Shatner. And oh. I mentioned this because this is your first time with Shatner in 85 on TJ Hooker. But you'd work with him again two more times in your career for a total of three. If you can do math, that's three. Uh, you worked with him again on Boston Legal and later on in Shit My Mother Says. So, I mean, you, you're on this guy three different shows. You've got to have some interesting relationship with Shatner. So I'm, I'm curious to hear, you know, what is it like working with Shatner on basically three different decades? Um, Actually, you know, the interesting thing about those experiences were I think we were able to, to have a little bit more conversation when we we're doing shut my father said than before T- during tj hooker he was more caught up in being tj and making sure that his hair was okay because <laughs> cuz not to be a teller of tales it's a, each decade you're going how the hell does he manage he really maintains it you know um, i don't know how he does well, it today still at 90 yes you know he's he's got a good person who makes his makes his pieces that's all i can say good visual um, effects team yeah, it, it's got to give uh, Bill credit, though, for being able to um, navigate through the decades. I mean, what is that, Priceline.com? Everybody said, why is he doing that? Well, he did it because he got a great equity back end on the goddamn thing. And he didn't have to work again in his life. You know, so it's it's one of those things where he's like, I mean, he's had some tragedy. He's had tragedy in his life and everything, but he just keeps bouncing back. and. The fact that he winds up being one of the first guys to, to hit outer space who's not a trained astronaut says something as well, you know. But I would be bereft to imply if there was anything more aside from being in the same, working with Bill and being in the same projects with him. So it's like, um, sometimes it's like, I feel like Zelig sometimes, you know, you're the six degrees of uh, you're next to so, somebody there. But and, and a lot of times the tales you can tell are the tales other people tell of the person that you're working with. And that that wouldn't be fair because it's hard to vet whether those tales were true or just uh, stretched out type of thing, you know. But, I mean, certain people you're going, oh, yeah. I mean, when we did the challenge, John Frankenheimer, our technical advisor at the time was a thin Steven Seagal. What is that like? I've never seen the thin Steven Seagal. Oh, Steven was this. um, Some of the stories he told then, he still tells now. He has an ego. Yes, he does. And at the time, he was this gaijin, the first gaijin or white person to have his own dojo in Osaka. In uh, um, what is it? uh, In his Aikido. Aikido. Correct. But what he doesn't, and he's good in the thing, but he would he say, oh, Clyde, I don't understand them. I'm, I'm giving them all the beautiful exact things for the Aikido, but they're, they don't want to shoot it. They want to go to this other, because it wasn't filmically happening. That's why, because, you know, it, it's nice to see the form, but you have to engage the audience. 
So they went with Mifune's person from, from Mifune Productions. So at any rate, Stephen, what Stephen failed to say at the time was the fact that he had the dojo because he married the daughter of the owner of the dojo. <laughs> and he had two kids with her. And then, of course, he left her and went to Hollywood, met a guy um, named, was it the head of its, uh, CAA, and who sold him on the studio executives, sold him on his talent. And he wound up being an action star, right? And then he was really, but it was always like, oh, man, I, I just don't get it sometimes. And what you get is he sold it on his uh, physical talent. But as a person, he is really, um, I wouldn't say, he can't be the most unpleasant chap around. You know what I mean? Very unpleasant. I mean, personally, one of my favorite stories about Steven Seagal is the one with Gene Lavelle. Uh, maybe, I don't know if, you, if you're familiar with that one. Oh, Gene. Yeah, Gene is a terrific guy to work with. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If, you, if, if people don't know the story about Gene Lavelle and Steven Seagal, Google that. That's for another day. Did you, you ever cross paths with Gene? Yeah, yeah. We would cross paths in many productions together. Or he'd be doing this, the fight scenes like in Bring It Back Alive or other um, that a series that I had, Action Adventure Series with Bruce Boxleitner. Yep, we actually interviewed, uh, you might know him too, uh, Harvey Jason. We interviewed him back in the oh, show. Oh, Harvey, yes, Harvey, yeah. Harvey Mystery was, Books. Uh, Harvey was one of our semi-regulars on Bring Him Back Alive. Yep. Yeah, he's, uh, Harvey's a very, very talented actor. Yes, you know? very talented, yeah. And uh, now he runs a bookstore, an amazing bookstore in Hollywood. Yes, the, but he's quite the expert on rare, authentic, and authenticating books and everything like that. And he hasn't he hasn't acted for I think the one of the um, dinosaur pictures was one of the last one he got eaten. Yeah, he did the last the, the Lost World. That was his last film. That's right. Yeah. Yep. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh no, no, no. All these names pop up. I mean, it's sort of like a path cross. You know. Yeah, it's really cool. Everybody knows Gene LaBelle. Everybody has a Gene LaBelle story, and I guess everybody knows Harvey Jason too because he's now supplying really amazing books to people. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. All right, so Clyde, let's go ahead and beam into our Star Trek discussion. And you were first seen in Star Trek The Next Generation. You are Admiral Nakamura. You make Correct. your debut in The Measure of a Man, which is a classic uh, Brent Spiner data-centric episode. Uh, so let's just start at the beginning here. Uh, had you ever auditioned for any Star Trek roles before this? Yes, I did. In fact, um, I was uh, for... Was it Deep Space Nine? Yeah, I was... Oh. Uh, that would have been after this, actually. That would have been after. I'm going to ask you about that one. Um, DS9 came a few years after TNG. It did? No. Yep, yep. It did? Yep. Trust well, me on that one. I know that one. <laughs> really? Because that's weird. Because I seem to... My memory bank was that um, I had auditioned for Quark. Because my agent said, how would you like... What? How would you consider doing a seven-year contract in uh, heavy makeup? With it wearing a different head. <laughs> I said, whatever it takes, you know, seven years is seven years. And so um, I read before Rick Berman and everything, and uh, I just, I didn't make the cut. But the, and I auditioned for Rick other times and to the point where he'd go, hey, hi, Clyde, how are you? I was <laughs> like, hi, Rick, how are you? And, and it just so happened as Admiral Nakamura, it, it was the thing that connected. And um what was great about it was uh, I got got to uh, work with Michael Westmore again, uh, famous family, the Westmore family. Uh, his brother, Frank, was our makeup guy on Bring Him Back Alive back in 82 because the Westmores were Universal, Paramount, Warner Brothers. They're the first and, family uh, of makeup. 
family makeup, the Dons, the Dons were MGM. And Bob Dawn was my makeup guy that I worked with on the challenge with Frankenheimer. But uh, so anyway, Matt, this, the great thing about, I will diverge, but the great thing about um, Star Trek, the whole thing, it gave Michael Westmore the ability to save uh, the art of makeup and training uh, future makeup artists because it provided him the lab and people who wanted to learn. Because Michael said, the hardest thing I find where you're going to spend a couple hours just in you and makeup is because you got to be Picard's uh, equal from the Space Academy days. And it's really hard with the smooth face to, to age it up a little bit. So we'll keep the mustache. We'll add a mustache. We'll gray you up like crazy and everything like that. And try to put some stuff, more more age marks or whatever. Um so that uh, you know you you can come up to it and and I loved wearing the the uniform that we had to fit it about two or three times because it was this, this this look and everything and then to be on the set to go bridge you know or touch command going on transporter or whatever all those things were like flash back to 1966 watching the first Star Trek uh, series that I saw as a as a 18 year old at the time. And it's sort of like you're living the dream, you know, you're living the dream. You're, you're all get up. And then to work with Brent again was fun. And at that time, Brent was sort of like oh, a little bit of grumbling about having to be painted up all the time. And I, I said, Brent, you could have been doing seven years of Sprayberry in Paradise with Jim Neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> this will change your whole world. Later on, he would go, yes, don't talk about it anymore. I get it. I really get it. You know, he, he didn't drink the Kool-Aid, but he understood why the Kool-Aid tastes the way the Kool-Aid tastes and why you keep ordering the Kool-Aid, you know. And if I may but, compliment you too, Clyde, I got to say, you look younger today than you did in that Star Trek episode. That that old age makeup they put on you, that made you look quite old. <laughs> you look so good. good. So you know, worked. Yeah, you did, Michael, did job. Michael's stuff worked. That's great. That's great. Yeah, so anyway, I, I did. And then when um, the set was so welcoming, it was like... You know, um, you're treated as a peer and respectfully. And also it's like, geez, thank you for doing the show. And it's like, oh, wow, thank you. So I've been to the Star Trek creation convention twice. And it's like kind of like a homecoming, you know. And it's like, uh, it was like kind of cool to to see all the old faces again. You know, like LeVar, LeVar Burton and I worked, uh, did voiceover on Captain Planet and the Planeteers going way back into the 70s, you know. Oh, that was the 90s, actually. I, I grew up watching that the 90s? Show. That was Captain oh. Planet was the 90s, yep. Oh, okay. Yeah, Whoopi Goldberg was, you know, uh, Mother Earth, I think, Gaia. Gaia, yep, yep. Yeah, so it was like we shot it and we, we recorded little studio in Studio City, you know, kind of a thing. You just never know who the heck you're working with, you know. Uh, but the constant would be a guy named Fe- Frank Welker, who is his voiceover artist supreme. Oh, yeah. I, I wish animals and tr- he's one of those guys that makes me wish this show wasn't just Star Trek and I could just do everything because Frank is one of those like he is a true legend in the industry. Oh, and my God, yeah, yeah, I'd love yeah, to talk to absolutely. him. It was the, the days where all of a sudden he was going through his mail and his residuals were this thick. The pile <laughs> of was this thick. Went, Jesus, no wonder you're going to fly uh, buy a plane and everything like that. But uh, yeah, so. Um, so anyway, I wound up doing 
Well, the thing that's cool about it is I, I didn't realize at the time, but I also was able to to guest as Nakamura on the season finale of the whole thing. And just to be part of that, um, the history is always cool. That's all. I, I don't know if you're aware, but the part that you played, I had read that initially, both times actually that you were on the show, I guess, um, it was meant for different actors. Originally, like, I think one of the parts was meant for a character named, like, Admiral Blackwell, uh, and they couldn't get this person on. And I think same same thing with your second appearance. It was meant for someone else. They couldn't get them. So I was wondering oh, if, really? if you had heard anything about that, if there's any truth to that, or if this is your first time hearing that. This is my first time hearing that. Okay. I mean, I'm, this is just what I've heard secondhand, rumor and innuendo, but I was just curious if you had any thoughts on it. So, uh, you know, interesting. Yeah. Oh, no. Hey, I mean, hey, I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> because it has, like, three appearances as the Admiral, so it's sort of like, you're part of the uh, the the Star Trek Next Generation universe, you know, and I that's got a story a lot of folks have had too. We, we, cards. Huh? I, I, that's a story I've heard from a lot of folks too. Is I've interviewed folks who were, you know, basically uh, one actor couldn't do the job, they came in and did it, and now it's like their iconic role. So you know, it's uh, hats oh off to yeah, you get... yeah, yeah. You never know um, what's what's going to happen. Like uh, Gary Cole was originally going to be Mel Prophet in Wise Guy, that. Kevin Spacey wound up getting cast in. Yeah. Because <laughs> Gary was indisposed. So, and then from that, that launched Kevin Spacey's career before he crashed and burned. Yeah. I'm not touching that one, Clyde. I'm not going there. Uh, <laughs> no, no, we're not going to touch that one. No. But you know, as right far on. as like your shoot day, I mean, do you remember much about it on, on the episode of Measure of a Man, let's say? Uh, do you remember much about that shoot day? Because I know there's not really a ton of meat to pick apart here in this one, but you basically do get to walk across the set with Patrick Stewart. Uh, what do you remember your day being like? Well, it's also the the, the other the, the, um was it is it Annie McBride or the another gal who played one of the officers or prosecutors? She's a singer, so so um. But I will tell you this: one thing I do remember about uh, what I still hold dearly is how welcoming Patrick is or was at the time, and he was very. Um, He's one of the, he's only maybe the second actor I know that would take his scripts and have them bound with leather. So he must have this huge collection of scripts. And Patrick was very generous and so hospitable and welcoming. And and going, thank you. I think it was one it was the second episode where he directed it, I believe. He did it. And so he was like, Thank you for doing this. It's sort of he kind of made it like, Oh, thanks for doing a favor doing this thing. I appreciate that. So, you know, it's I, I got to do to meet up with Patrick uh, at the first Star Trek convention I did back in 2014, I believe. And it was like very cool. I mean, it's like you're part of you're part of various universes, you know, and to a different fandom. I th- I don't know. It's more more today than before. There is a growing and developing fan base for a lot of shows that you thought were gone, but are being brought up and remembered fondly, you know? I mean, even the thing like family matters, you know, it was like, it was like 11 years and I was principal Shimada for, uh, I don't know how many of the episodes I did, but, uh, three episodes, by the way, I know. Cause I just prepared for it. <laughs> ah, yeah. So like you mentioned, uh, the episode phantasms was directed by Patrick Stewart. And I'm, I'm kind of curious to hear what is he like as a director? And again, I want to preface like your scene is basically, I believe, uh, it's like what we're doing right now. It's basically like, you know, Space Zoom yeah, yeah. and Starfleet. But, uh, you know, was was he there actually directing you for that scene? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. What kind of a director is he? How would you describe uh, what he does on set? He's he's a director. I mean, um, 
you know, a good director doesn't have to play being a director. It's just a sense of um, the knowledge you bring that you know he has to, his attention is can't just be with you. His attention is with all the departments and making sure that he has it all done and his work is done. The angles, the coverage, everything like that. So there's really no time, especially when you're working with uh, actor, director or director for um, idle chit chat. There's no way to find it. Uh, it doesn't happen very often. So all I can say is what I just said to you in regards to that. Um, even the last episode I did, the finale, it was one of those screen yep, kind yep. of a presentation stuff. So um, a lot of it is, you know, you just you do your work, you maintain your skill set, and you become you be be professional and um, just do the good work as possible. That's all, you know. And they capture that, and yeah. because it is captured, and it will live long as long as they're good preservatives <laughs> and digital whatever to keep it all together that all the pixels stay together you know now, do you recall if there was anything that was left on the cutting room floor from your time on star trek no i don't think so no no i think they utilized everything that needed to be done it's like it's it's not the kind of thing where you go through your pages where am i where am i where am i it's just like oh okay it's like, it to me it's just uh acceptance is the key and to be part of the whole is better than trying to take over and be something more than was intended. That's not, that's not happening. You know, there's not going to be a breakout now because we all know who the story is and, and you just service you as a supporter, I guess you're servicing the story and you're servicing the other regulars playing off of them. You know, now, were you a fan of the new Star Trek at the time? Were you watching that or, at all? Or were you kind of just too busy working at that time for it? Because if my friend is uh, Michelle Hurd, and um, I saw the first maybe three or four episodes, but like anything, uh, I haven't had the time to completely watch it. It's sort of like I didn't have the time to watch the second season of Mandalorian until I was on right. <laughs> quarantine in Australia. Also was able to watch second and third seasons of Narcos Mexico while there too, you know, just... Because there's a lot of good content out there that um, it's like Discovery. I think I've done the first season, but I don't think I've, and I've read for a couple of parts after that, but I'm going to have to go back and see where I have to start over again at that. Um, it's not as grabbing as Picard is. Picard is sort of like as you got some of the icons coming back together and how is it going to fit in? <clears throat> and the story is still closer to the time frame that the story ended. So there's yep, that. Basically real time. And discovery is like, now it's like, which universe are we in or which time period is, is it Georgie is Georgie is now the Empress. And it, after a while, it's sort of like trying to keep it together. You know, it's sort of like, it takes a lot of work. I mean, you really have to have a thesaurus, <laughs> next to you to keep the the pamphlet is like who's who now you know i mean i still am thinking how does stemets work now again the how do these mushroom things how do you <laughs> is that what what drive <laughs> you know what i mean it's sort of like how does it work 
that type of thing. Mycelial network. Well, that's a whole uh, diatribe for another day, I think. But uh, since you oh. did actually mention Michelle Yeo, I mean, have you ever worked with her? Michelle? No, I, I did meet Michelle a couple of years ago. And it was one of those kind of nice uh, moments where each person recognizes the other person for their work. And, and it's, it's, it's not is more more friendly than professional. So, you know, it was nice. It's a nice moment. That's all. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. Ranging from prop replicas to use in a fan film or cosplay, to accessories or playsets for figures in all different sizes, Triple Fiction Productions has got you covered. Past pieces for toys have included large centerpieces, like 10 Forward from the Enterprise D, shuttlecrafts complete with working lights, and the Voyager Bridge, with smaller pieces including Borg alcoves, the Genesis device, and the dreaded arch-enemy of Worf, Barrels. All highly detailed products are 3D printed and hand-painted in the USA, with new items added all the time, while simultaneously improving their printing quality based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit triple-fictionproductions.net or visit them on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Want to get 10% off your next purchase? Use code UNTOLD10 at checkout to receive this discount. Not applicable during sales or clearance events. That's code UNTOLD10 to get 10% off action figure dioramas, accessories, and prop replicas. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. Hey, I'm Licia Nav, a.k.a. Ensign Sonia Gomez from Star Trek TNG. And now, Captain Sonia Gomez on Lower Decks with her own ship, the Archimedes. Yay! I finally got a promotion after 25 years. So anyway, I'm here to talk about drivebydogooders.org. It's a little charity I run where we go to the outskirts of Skid Row, and from our car windows, we hand out basic human essentials like water, wipes, cold stream cheese, socks, tarps, masks, t-shirts, things to keep people warm. So we just think that everyone deserves clean water, some protein, and a way to clean themselves, especially during Corona. We also hand out masks to those who really, really need it, who live in tents on the street, mainly the disabled and elderly who have a really hard time getting to services. And we do all of this with no agenda, just pure giving, no overhead. If you'd like to go to the website and donate, it's 100% tax deductible. And if you click on the donate button, you can go right to the $35 option and pick a signed autograph picture of either the Star Trek The Next Generation or Lower Decks or Total Recall, where I played the three-breasted mutant hooker on Mars. And uh, that's the X-rated version. Put in the comments section your address and anything you'd like me to write, and I'll personally inscribe it and mail it off to you immediately. And again, that's drivebydogooders.org. Ensign, I mean, Captain Sonia Gomez, signing off. We now return to Trek Untold. So I want to go back in time now because, you know, we're talking about Star Trek here, but I can remember your face very vividly as a child. And one of the roles I actually remember you the most from, I think, uh, and we'll get into why I guess a little bit later on, but like one of the roles I really remembered you from was as Principal Shimada from Family Matters. Uh, and I just got to rewatch those episodes as part of my research for this. And I got to tell you, like the, the last episode you did, in fact, that's actually one I can almost remember line for line, the one that has uh, Tom Poston in it. Um, that's oh, such a fun yeah. episode. Yeah, but uh, 
I would love to hear any stories you have from being on that set and also working so closely with Jaleel White, especially because you started out in season two. I think your last one was on season five. So you basically kind of kind of got to watch the rise of Urkel as a celebrity in a lot of ways. Well, you know, it's interesting because it's like what stands out is that I got to work at the show again with Reggie, Reggie Van Jelson, Van Jel- Johnson, Bill Johnson. Johnson. And Reggie and I first worked together on Turner and Hooch way back uh, in in that day. When hasn't he played a cop, really? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And especially, especially what, to me, the, you know, that, that old line, classic TV Christmas film, Die Hard, babe, Die Hard. <laughs> no Still debate for it. me. That is a Christmas movie. <laughs> yeah, it's a Christmas movie. And um, it was one of the last ones, actually, that uh, Jimmy Shigeta did. And it was good that, it, in a way, as a testament to his filmography, that Jimmy has that classic hit on his resume before, you know, he eventually passed away a few years ago. Um, and I, I've worked with Jimmy before in voiceovers and even, well, Midway, Jimmy was in Midway as well, playing one of the admirals. Um, but at any rate, uh, so Reggie, it was an interesting show because, was it the second season I did with Jaleel? Is that it? Because uh, you did second season, uh, I think it was then the third, and then the fifth. Okay, Here, here's why that, in a way, stands out much more, is that when we did the second season, we were shooting at the old MGM lot, or Sony lot, and the, is it Branson, the, the littlest actor at the time, what was surreal about it was Bush had ordered Baghdad hit that night and attacked. So we're doing, we're trying to shoot a show and everybody's going into the little kids dressing room because the TV's on to the show of, of all the weaponry being exploded and the attack on Baghdad. So it was like, you try to make people laugh and then there's war happening. It, it kind of really is kind of surreal. And that one, and um, working with Jaleel, um, it was uh, workmanlike, all right? Because by that time, he's already established as the breakout character. But I did get some insight about what how it happened, you know, how Jaleel guessed it on it. And between performances and pickups, they, they, they signed him as the regular for the show. And how, in many respects, a lot of times when you're doing a show, there's a conviviality and goodwill, you know. But when you go in for the table read, and there's that, and then you break for the writers to go over the notes from the table read. For that show, everyone went split. Reggie had his two two six-packs of Coke to take into his room. (laughs) And we're there going, okay, you know, hanging out. And it's a weird dynamics. and And I do believe the show eventually went for 11 years, didn't it, I think? 11 or 12. Yeah, very long. Yeah, very long. So, um, and I did wind up working with a couple of the characters later on in a in a independent movie called Gas. Um, but aside from that, it was kind of a weird dynamics because sometimes I thought the comedy was a little bit too low and too stereotypic. Um, I mean, my character, of course, Jaleel and I had to do the Japanese. That was in a way, but that was what the hook was for the for the comedy. But um, in many respects, to me, that stands out as how there were different shows for different 
audiences or demographics out there because there were more people. You'd be recognized a lot of times from a demos, like you know, say in the black community. Oh, you're you're the guy in Family Matters versus if you were in a different demographic. Oh, you're the guy that was in All in the Family. You know, it, it really became this um, who's watching who, and that's when that around that time they had two. Uh, there was the WB network and the UPN network, and then UPN eventually became more black oriented with their shows, um, black shows. And then it was merged together. Now it's the CW. So there's a lot in that. In that, I just realized I'm talking about entities that no longer exist, but it shows how old I've been in this business to be able to <laughs> recognize that there were other mini networks going on. You know? oh, but that is kind of an interesting point, though, to bring up is, you know, we've been kind of discussing your entire career really from the beginning to now we're in like the mid to late 90s. And, you know, through your eyes, you're, you are an Asian-American actor. It's a very different world that you're living in. And the kind of roles that you're getting uh, are probably very different from what, let's say, a white actor will be getting. Um, so, you know, I mean, at this point in your career, how would you say things have changed in Hollywood? Were they actually better? And was better kind of like a relative term? Um, I believe that what helps uh, from my my point of view and from my, my, my career was that I think I hit the right moment because... A lot of times I would be, this is in the late 70s, 80s, into the 90s, would be seen where there'd be one white actor, one black actor, one Hispanic actor, one Asian actor. And I would get it. I mean, in fact, I did a Cagney and Lacey where they didn't bother to change Detective Rodriguez, the name. But, you know, hey, it works. I could be, you know, part Asian or whatever. Um, like uh, when I worked with... Um, Walker, Texas Ranger. Chuck knew of my work. And so when I did the first Walker, Texas Ranger, was like, hey, how are you? You know, we, And then I wound up doing a second uh, Walker, Texas Ranger. And then Chuck's um, brother, I think the last one I did, we were in Dallas. And, and they were saying, this is when the time I got, I got All-American Girl. And so, you know, we, Chuck and I are going to do a film. Uh, this summer in San Diego. And that was the one with the dog. Um, and we'd like you to play the head of the, the, the sheriff's department or whatever. And they never bothered to change the, the name to uh, from Callahan, Captain Callahan. And somebody on the set were in San Diego and uh, someone said, Callahan. <laughs> and his brother went, Oh, you mean Callahan? But then now you can say, there's a lot of Asians who were adopted by Caucasian people and they have Caucasian names. There's a lot of that, you know, but today I believe there's much more uh, opportunities and there's much more sensitivities going on. And you can tell it by, if you look at the landscape in commercials, for example, it's much more diverse than ever. You have different pairings. You could be black father, Caucasian mo uh, mother, um, multiracial daughter and Cheerios, or it could be a Caucasian woman with an Asian husband and uh, Hapa kids, or, you know, it, it, there's just this whole mixture. And what's good about it is, is that people wind up getting used to, this is like normal. This is not exotic. You're not exotic. Back in the seventies, we'd be kind of exotic because nobody would see it. But now people are seeing like if even back in the 60s or 70s, you would walk in any major city, 
go to the hospital. There were a lot of Asians going around, but you never saw it on, on the TV shows. TV shows were like all white, you know. And so it is, it's a sort of like subliminal messaging going on. And they're finding, the ad, ad world is finding that it enhances the buying power of, for their product because more people are buying the product and everything like that. And it's not segregated anymore. There's just a, a, across the board. The Hispanic market, 33% of the Hispanic market is responsible for a good amount of consumer spending. And that's where the advertisers are looking for their bucks to be spent and product to be bought. You know, and it, it's it's a balancing out thing. And And like what's interesting, what's becoming very popular on Netflix are product or content from another country, like Korean stories, yeah. Italian stories, Spanish stories, you know, and, and they're realizing it just brings up the subscription level and everything like that. And even it's, it's kind of enhanced uh, acting for dubbing. Before, dubbers used to just be bland. It would be, and people in the United States, for example, didn't uh, flock to see any shows that were dubbed uh, or with subtitles. Or they did because they said the subtitles you could understand, but now they're casting actors in the dubbed roles, which are bringing a quality of performance up in many respects of so people that are understanding and have a more connect. So there's a whole different, uh, I've done a couple of um, dubbing um, for, for Netflix projects and it's, it's good because you're just, it's, you're not doing like an animation voiceover, but you're doing like in a natural um, setting, you know? So it's all work. I mean, the Brit actors say, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, it could be radio, television, film, stage. We're actors. We're paid to act. And so we act. So it's like um, you're talking about a field of endeavor, uh, a craft, so to speak. I still consider myself a, a journeyman actor at this point. Yeah, at this time. And will continue to be a journeyman actor. I humbly disagree with you, Clyde. You are far from that. You are a living legend. And uh, really, it has been an honor to talk to you about all this stuff. But I kind of want to bring it back for a second to one of your earlier points. Uh, and, you know, I know you're not really watching current Star Trek or Star Trek Discovery, but one of the current criticisms from a lot of folks who don't like the new Star Trek shows is how, you know, this season, season four, the bridge crew, there's actually like no white cis heterosexual men on the bridge. It's <laughs> it's actually predominantly uh, women uh, and it's people of color on the set. There's I, I, there's you could you could argue that Doug Jones is the only white guy on set, but Doug Jones is wearing alien makeup, so not really. Right. Yeah, <laughs> so, and, yeah. And you know, a lot of folks will say that they'll use the term "go woke, go broke," uh, and I'm curious to hear what your reaction is about that because you know here we are, like I said, even Star Trek, uh, there's no white men on that show in the bridge crew, and uh, you know there's all this hatred towards the show. They don't like the inclusivity. They don't like this diversity. Uh, you know, what's your take on it here in 2021 and just having the career that you've had? getting up to this point today, I mean, what is your take on just this idea of inclusivity and making it fit into the shows? Well, geez, that's kind of disappointing that there's that kind of harsh reaction from the, uh, from the public. I should um, say, you know, just to be totally clear, it's basically a, kind of a line right down the middle of Star Trek fans where one side is like, yay, this is great. And there's another part of it that's just unhappy with it. So let, let's just be clear about this. It's not all Trek fans. It's just basically kind of a, a line down the middle that separates the fandom. And it's a pretty yeah. deep line. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I mean, um, well, that's why I say it's unfortunate because the whole thing, I mean, it's almost like the basic premise of a measure of a man, correct? I mean, it's like, who's human? What is the identifying factor? What makes a person a person? So 
So now nobody's nobody's getting pissed off that Brett Spiner is white, bathed in gold, you know, playing an android, for example. Um, but it's um, it should, unfortunately, it should go beyond that. It really should. And I mean, in, in some respects, be, I guess woke is that new term. Huh? I, I think it's becoming to the point where you really have to be careful of saying anything that smacks of more so genderism and, you know, things like a simple thing like, boy, that person is easy on the eyes. See, I said that person is easy on the eyes because I saw a thing where a woman said about a man, boy, he's easy on the eyes. But I remember recently saying that in reference to uh, a, a gal and my friend said, oh, you can't say that anymore. So, I mean, it gets to the point where pronouns, uh, you may throw may throw rotten tomatoes at me, but with proma, pronouns, I go, I don't use them. I don't use pronouns. You know, is, is it gender? It's like, man, you know, that's it. I mean, I do not want, I do not care to be forced to, to um, identify in the ways that are are so popular. I mean, it's taken so hard to pe- to say about mixed race when you can say hapa, which is a Hawaiian term, half Haole, white, half Hawaiian or half Asian. And now people used to say, what's hapa mean? But it's easy because it's hapa is Hawaiian for half, half, half or whatever, or double hapa or whatever. And I think there's going to be a point where sensibility will reign again. People will get away. From- it's it's a, it's it's. It's also a weapon of a political faction who wants to keep it everything divided and wants wants to supplant certain stories to utilize for their own purposes in in many respects. And in many respects, it's all good fashion, down-home fascism involved. Create what um, Orwell said is the enemy and the others, you know, to to do it. And so what it takes is just to... um, pushback and just say, I disagree. We can always say we disagree. And you can always choose either to engage in the argument or just to say, we agree to disagree and let's move on. You know, if you want to keep it that way, then you you have your own fan base or whatever. And if it's going to generate whatever, at a certain point, you're going, really, are we really discussing what the makeup of the bridge on the discovery should be? What's happening in What's happening in Ethiopia? What's happening in China? What's happening with the Uyghurs, where there's genocide, Myanmar, and all that kind of stuff? Do we have to do a show on that before people get engaged? You know, you know the, the Rohingya. They're in a way they they need some representation, but people will go, "What are you talking about?" Because in many respects, I think what's changed is the Education level of our audience has gone down, you know, because people are not paying attention in class or what's important. And that's why the classic, if you want to get ahead, study, learn, know your history so that you can understand where you're going. Know your cultures so you can understand to portray the cultures and give a better help, maybe bring some understanding from one culture to the other. You know, a lot of times you can play... I've experienced where 
people said, oh, I hate the stereotype enemy roles where we, we have to be the bad Japanese or the bad enemy. Well, first of all, if you approach it in a more authentic manner of why a person has to behave that way, for example, the lieutenant can hit the sergeant who can hit the corporal, who can hit the private, who respond is a physical uh, bashing, bullying kind of background as servant, military service. Of course, it's understandable. There can be a moment where that person has forced to do that, but the moment can really happen. The audience can see there's something different that the person doesn't believe it as much anymore. You know, it's how you portray it. I'd like to kind of follow that up with a point that I hear a lot. Um, you know, and that's I, I usually hear this from the people who are very much against inclusion of other genders, other races, uh, uh-huh. and, and who are against like using pronouns properly, that kind of thing. I'll hear this. Uh, and a great example is I'm in a Facebook group that is for Turner Classic Movies, and it's mostly people who are much older than me. And these are folks uh-huh. who say how much they love Charlie Chan and how great it is to see Charlie Chan and all those movies. And then they'll complain when they don't show them on TV. And that's because there's no Asian people really in those films. They're just pretending to play Asian people. Right, uh, right. And it's like, you know, basically, I'll, I'll hear this again also about a lot of criticism for Star Trek Discovery, how the best person should play the part. But what if the best person is not the person who has the right experiences to play that part? But if it's, you know, if it's a role that's meant for a certain type of person, is it the right way to go? Well, but the, the people don't understand. People have to have the sensitivity to understand that creates a false impression for for an Asian with Charlie Chan, for example. Yeah, Charlie right? Chan might not be the best example here. I guess I'm going for, but I'm hoping you kind of but see the big picture. You can also look at Mr. Moto that was played by Peter Lorre. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, Peter, but the thing is, the difference between Moto and China, uh, Charlie Chan was Moto also was a master of disguise. So you'd see him playing like a, a um, bazaar in, say, Morocco, like a Bedouin or something like that. Or he'd, and, but he'd take off the makeup and he'd show that he had the ability. Then he'd, of course, go into his little subservient cut, Moto speaking, that type of thing. But Moto also was adept in jujitsu and judo. So he could defend himself and he could be offensive. He wasn't meek and just a victim, for example. And as the you know, international police, he had a different demeanor, as opposed to Charlie Chan, who just had these witticisms and, as they quote, fortune cookie philosophies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and his sons were the ones that were Mar- gee, pop, I don't understand how to do that. Oh, silly boy, that kind of a thing. But it created um, the white version of what an Asian was. So that's where it's you know problematic. For example, if you do um, a Native American or Indigenous role today, their names are like Rick Braithwaite or whatever, because but they have Native American blood in them, Caucasian names, and they certain tribes, they look, you could be a member of that reservation in the tribe, but you may have a quarter, a sixteenth Native American blood in you. You know, it's it's if the, the tribe would recognize you. So, I mean, there's that way of, of looking at the casting situation there, too. But there's also, I mean, I remember seeing a panel. We had a panel at SAG-AFTRA where it was a Native American indigenous thing, where even the Native American indigenous actor were quite respectable, respectful in doing their research. They want to make sure if they're playing, they're not Lakota Sioux, they're more Comanche, that they're being respectful and being able to portray the Lakota Sioux and what's going there. And they still feel... Little, but you know, if, if you look at it, there's more of a, a difference respect for or awareness now for the Native American and the indigenous tribes 
of the United States in when they portray stuff. There's a little bit more wanting to get much more of a authenticness about it. You know, there was a time when it's one of these debatable things where <clears throat> I used to, um, I remember working with Bruce Beresford and we were uh, between shots and he's going, you know, Clyde, I got a new, uh, I've got a project in the planning stage that takes place uh, with Vietnamese. Uh, I'd like to use you, but I know you're not Vietnamese. And I would go, well, you know, I played almost every kind of uh, Asian cultural person, but I found a nice way of putting it, or, or a much more understandable way of putting it is like, okay, Bruce, so if this was going to be a project that takes place in Haiti, you're going to only look at Haitian Blacks, or you're going to look at Blacks because Blacks can play Haitians. Or if you're doing something with uh, El Salvador, you're not just going to look for El Salvadorians, but people who are Hispanic. But there's difference. The Hispanic actor is different from the Castilian Spanish, from the South American actor to the you know, the, the general acceptable way of talking is um, Mexican Spanish, what they use in Mexico. But then is there uh, in more um, Indo-Hispanic because there's a lot more mestizo blood in them? Or is it going to be Spanish-Spanish with the more Europeans type of thing? But for some reason, Asian-ness, you have to be, the code word is authentic. You have to have Vietnamese for Vietnamese. Cambodians for Cambodians, Hmong for Hmong, um, you, you, Chinese for Chinese. You know, it, it becomes almost as if you're out, even though you look, you could play it, but nah, you're not really authentic enough. But uh, it's tiring. That's what it is. It's tiring because you have to feel like you're going to be an educator, an anthropologist and sociologist at the same time in stating your case. Because then they'll go, oh, okay. Yeah, I understand that. Well, I feel like but another still, perspective on it too is is more so like you know, the authenticity of having a Hispanic person playing a Hispanic part, whether they are the right nationality or not, is like a, an issue or debate for another day. But I guess more so the fact that, uh, you know, I guess more the converse kind of what we're talking about here. How let's say uh, folks won't like seeing an Asian person play a character that has been typically white over time, because that's also a big thing we see a lot today. Is um, I'm trying to think of a good example here, but there was some some uproar a little bit over even. Uh, Cowboy Bebop on Netflix recently, how you have John Cho playing Spike, and a lot of folks were thinking, no, Spike should be white. Um, so it's like, you know, these kinds of things where people who aren't the color are getting the casting into these roles because it's kind of like, you know, making sure they get seen, making sure they feel like they're, they are part of this world. Right, right. Yeah. They, they canceled this show anyway. So They did cancel it, unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> Not John Cho's fault. No, no. I mean, it was a very ambitious show for crying out loud, you know. But a lot of times it's... um. It's one of those things I don't know if there's ever going to be a real firm solution to. It's going to engage in conversation, but perhaps in the, the conversation leads to education and awareness. And a lot of times, I think sometimes the awareness is much better an outcome than to be not aware and maintain your your um, little balloons or, or, or silos and not being able to move the silos. But um, the whole idea is, you know, the great uniter is the fact that if you took a DNA test, most of the whites will have blood relations to blacks. It's just there. It's in the DNA. You can't wash it out, you know. Well, it's it nice to at least have um, these conversations, though. I mean, whether or not we agree on every single thing you and I have discussed right now, you know, it's whatever. But it's good to be able to talk. So I do appreciate you being open to that discussion. Oh, and okay. Yeah, yeah. You know, so there's, 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 there's so many fascinating stories, for example, 
like the Japanese had conquered Korea and made it part of the Japanese empire for almost 50 years. They tried to eliminate the Korean language, Korean names and everything like that. So in the 30s, a young Korean was drafted into the Imperial Army. They fought in a northern campaign against in Manchuria against the Soviets. This one soldier was captured by the Soviets, treated as a Japanese in, I think, in central Russia. Germany invades Russia. The Nazis are marching through, burning through. The Soviets need soldiers. This soldier from the Imperial Army, who's really Korean, was drafted into the Russian army, is captured by the Nazis, winds up being conscripted, not killed, but conscripted into the labor battalion for the German army on the, the Western Front and is captured at Utah in the invasion in 1944, spends a month or a year, I think, as a POW in England, immigrates to the United States and settles in Evanston, Illinois. <laughs> He's fought literally World War II in three different armies, the Imperial Japanese Army, the Russian Red Army, and the Nazi Wehrmacht. And he's captured by the Americans and is prisonered in, in England and then winds up living in um, outside of Chicago. They made a, a film, a Korean-American film, I mean, a Korean film um, about that, basically, with, with some added drama kind of a thing, with the basic storyline about that. Yeah, I was going to say, know, it sounds like, like a screenplay in the works. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm a guy, it's, it's, it's based on some true stuff that, that can be told and educate some people. That's all. I think this is kind of a really bit of a long segue to get to this point, but it brings up uh, one of the things that I think, in my opinion, is one of your most important works, and that was All American Girl. Oh. And this was a show growing up I was also a really huge fan of, and I got, I've got i rewatched the series on YouTube because it's there. I've rewatched it. Uh, not only does it hold up, I believe it's still just as relevant today as it was when oh. it first aired, if not more so. And, I mean, this is a show with, like, legitimate royalty here. I mean, it's, it's got you, number one, of course. Uh, we've got Margaret Cho. We have the amazing Amy Hill, who I really want to talk to at some point. Uh, Jody Long. Uh, B.D. Wong is in this show. Uh, I mean, it's an amazing cast. Um, you know, I don't even know where to begin, but I just want to learn as much as I can about All-American Girl, because I feel like it's a show more people should be watching. Oh, well, thank you for that. That's very nice of you to say. Um, in fact, I was talking to somebody about that. It's the, the whole the process of, like, All-American Girl. You know, at the time when they got Margaret, she was uh, she was 1993 comic comedian, each Rolling Stone comedy of, of 1993 or some some big award, whatever, because of her risque uh, act and the whole thing. You know, the late black latex bodysuits and stuff like that. My favorite comedy then, special. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I think they tried to make her into... Anne Marie, um, uh, Marlo Thomas, that girl in, in an Asian persona. In fact, when, um, so, you know, it was a hot show. Everybody wanted to get on it. And I wound up getting cast in it. And then I think um, people say they see like BD didn't have an Asian accent. Neither did Margaret. And Amy tells the story, says, didn't you have an accent before? And I said, well, I worked on having a slight accent in the sense of I'll go back to like say for example the story I tell in uh, um, Kung Fu in, in Arrogant Dragon where uh, the director said um, you're sounding can you add an accent you're sounding too American so I was going 
you really would fight because they want the L's and the R's, Rata Rock kind of a thing, and talking. And I thought, well, wait a minute. I'll just use the standard stage diction I learned at Northwestern. So instead of going, Kwai Chang Kane, we the member of the Tong, it was Kwai Chang Kane, we the member of the Tong. And it's and at the and he said, cut, that's it. It sounded different. And into the ear, it's different. You don't have to give them the stereotype. You can throw something else to counter that stereotype and change the stereotype when you're doing it. So where everyone was, um, the older people in All-American Girl who had the, the accent, I had just Margaret. You know, it's just kind of a little stilted. And as soon as we got picked up and I just said, fuck it, I'm just going to go and talk the way I did. And it worked and everybody liked Benny the way he did and what he thought. And it was it was quite a fun show. I see. I know what you mean, that um, it said a lot and can still hold up a lot. And totally interestingly does, yeah. enough, we had more flack from the Korean American community than uh, anybody else. You know, it, it was just why? Why could you just Korean American to, to do that? Well, the whole idea is, you know. The whole idea of acting is for, for crying out loud. You can have uh, you can have the Brit actors can play Germans, Russians, Italians, and the whole thing. Why is it that you have to like we're talking about authentic? Why do you have to to, to rigidly put it that way? I mean, it's the you know the, like for example, the greatest thing about Crazy Rich Asians CRA is that for the first time, the audiences in the world heard Asians speak in an American accent, a Brit accent. Uh, Australian accent, New Zealand accent, maybe Singaporean accent, Hong Kong English. So there's a bit of a there's a bit of a, a different way of talking when they're talking like that, you know. But most people are not listening to that. But by doing it that way, people's ears pick up, and you listen, and becomes becomes a norm. And um, it was one of those groundbreaking shows. You know, you're doing it for you're, you're part of history when you're doing it. And unfortunately, it, it didn't uh, get the numbers that it could have gotten. We we were loved in Chicago and Philadelphia. We had a high ratings there. You know, we had audiences there. San Francisco, not so much. But uh, today, today, I think it's the kind of a show that would live on on Netflix or wherever else, you know. Uh, but now you got like Nora, I guess. I haven't seen Nora, but with Aquafina. Uh, and then some other shows like Kim's Convenience that was five years on Canadian television, that kind of a thing. So it's, you know, it's better to have done than to wind up being, um, I don't know, uh, forever, I suppose. You know, it's that kind of a thing. It had a good run and it's kind of a cult classic now. If you know, you know, if you don't, you don't. But that's why I talk about it on this show, because I think it's worth talking about. And it's not Star oh, yeah. Trek. I don't care. It's still a great show. And no, honestly, throughout this entire interview, I feel like I'm talking to Benny Kim in a lot of ways. I feel like I'm talking to my Asian American dad right now, uh, uh, and, and you know, because it feels like it really was an extension of who you were, and it felt it feels very natural now getting to talk to you and talk to the real person behind all these roles. It feels like Benny Kim was just Clyde being a dad, and uh, you know, on that note, I, I kind of want to wonder: was there ever a moment on the show where it got real for you, where you kind of felt something? Maybe that stirred up some some memories from your past, or just a moment that made it feel like I'm not acting. This is an extension of me right now. Well, I'll tell you this. You know, like I said, I'm in my 27th year of recovery, and I got sober when we were doing the fourth episode of All American Girl. In fact, <clears throat> the whole premise of being in recovery is you're um, you're powerless, and 
but that doesn't mean you you can't let everything go. You have to uh, you have to do your job. You have to make the choices to, for example, your job at that point is to make everybody laugh, right? And the thing about it is, is when I did make the decision, I, I opened myself up to Amy Hill, played my mother. And I said, uh, Amy, I, I am an alcoholic and I'm stopping drinking. And her reaction was, how wonderful. This is great. Congratulations. And it was like each time I would break my anonymity, other people would uh, be so warm and enveloping and encouraging. In fact, Tim Lunabus was guest on that episode that I did that night. Because you go in, your job is to make everybody laugh, and you find a dark part of the stage, and you either sob or you just relieve or whatever. And um, we did two shows. that, And after the show, we always went to a place called Dalt's near Warner Brothers, um, bar and restaurant, and to unwind. All other shows did too. And I walked into the to the main bar and I said, give me a Perrier. It was green bottle, it sparkled, and it was cold. And I had maybe four of them that night. And that's when I also said to Tim, uh, I'm an alcoholic. He said, well, congratulations. You know, another point. And the, the funny thing about it is we wound up working together on another iteration of Kung Fu when Warner's Entertainment or Entertainment had an internet version of Kung Fu. Um, unfortunately, the characters were not articulate with their fingers, but I was playing Master Poe and Tim played young Kane in it. And David played a part of Kane in it as well. So it was like we made it from film, TV to Internet. You know, so that's that's a little digression there on that part. <laughs> I think nobody realizes that. But um so in that respect, um, there was also a point where um, uh, Quentin Tarantino came in because he was fr- he was friends with with uh, Margaret, and we did a takeoff on um, Pulp Fiction. It? Pulp Fiction, and it was great. You know, you get to just let loose and, and redo the different scenes. So the, it, this was fun, and the audience gets to see Asian American actors being that kind of a a character in that situation you know so it was uh it was all good um it's all very memorable and everything you know it's it's great today's world that there's interest in all the past shows that it's not just ancient history type of thing you know so it's uh it's a it's a wonderful opportunity to, to share those experiences and knowing that there's a um People or an audience willing to to listen or to hear, and are in, are clued in, and they want to know more about their shows, so to speak, or whatever. You know. Now, as far as other Star Trek connections go, Clyde, uh, I know you also were directed in a show by Jonathan Frakes. I think that was Dollhouse, right? Yes. Uh, so, yes. what do you remember about working with Frakes? Because uh, you know, I, I've I've had a chance to speak with Frakes, and we talked mostly about his directing. In fact, uh, so I'm curious to know, like, you know, how you felt his directing skills were. If you could describe the way he worked. Uh, and, you know, if you had any time to actually chat with Jonathan. Well, like, like, it's very, um, it's like moments you can chat, right? And the, the welcoming and it's like two comrades who work together the same show or whatever. But like anything, the director is the main captain. So he's got his 
uh, attention being pulled by various departments and uh, uh, directives as to what has to be done that day. But uh, the fun thing about it is I think Jonathan is having more fun as a director than he did as an actor, you know, um, because as an actor, he was basically the lead good looking guy in the uniform and, you know, saying what supporting executive officers have to say, blah, 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 blah. Whereas a director, you get to be more um, creative in your input and how you want to shoot the show. And you have direct, definite ideas how the show will look. And I think, for example, for, for them to pick Jonathan to do Discovery was a brilliant choice because he understands the whole, um, not only the concept, but the world and that world of Trek, Trekdom, so to speak. Yes. And, um, and so th- that's good. And so he is more of a fun guy in directing as well. He tries to keep the set very light and everybody comfortable and so that it becomes a conducive space to work. Uh, sometimes you wind yourself having experiences working with dictators in many respects who will yell and scream at everyone to get it right. And to the point where you can't say anything about it because he's the director. And even the exec producers aren't saying anything about it. So they must somehow uh, approve of the behavior and you don't want to go against that. So there's always that, that fine line. Of course, there are those that have maybe more uh, weight behind them and cred to be able to say, fuck you and walk off, you know, go stuff yourself or whatever. And they, they do that. And the other, and the director's left going, or the director won't um, act like that in the first place but pick on somebody else. But fortunately, I have, uh, in my experience, I've worked with some Martinets and dictators like that early in my career. And some of them are also in the middle career type who are well-known directors, but have um, highly volatile personalities, but he, they would get, I would get along with them. So I was never the object of the screaming or anything like that. Um, In fact, there was a, John Frankenheimer was known to have high energy personality uh, and such. And we were doing the challenge and we were doing a setup. For example, my character lives here. So Scott Glenn has to walk past me, turn the corner, and there are the swords there. And as we're setting up, he just turned to me and says, uh, what do you think about that? And it was a night shoot. And I was thinking. Hmm. I said, John, what if Scott walks past my room? I don't come out like the script says. So he feels confident so that by the time he's there and hits the room where the swords are, he's feeling confident. But then I pop out going, what are you doing here? And he went, brilliant. Brilliant. (laughs) What am I thinking about? Reset. And I went, oh, my God. He said, wow, that's kind of a nice moment. I'll just take it. And there was another point where I said, well, you know, I said, Clyde. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, you you just, you never know. I mean, that's, it's sort of like playing, right? I mean, sometimes there is a time, there is a safe zone when there's fire burning and you can uh, walk through without getting burned, you know? Yeah. 
Um, but anyway, I, I digress from Jonathan as a director. But, uh, well, proof is in the pudding. He keeps working a lot as a director. So there's that. And I know that you had a chance to work with one Sulu out there. I know you've worked with John Cho. Uh, but I'm curious to know if you ever had a chance to work with or meet even George Takei. Oh, no, I, I know George through personal functions at the Academy where he's a member. I'm a member of everything. And and his husband or wife, Brad. And I, I do remember saying, isn't it ironic that George comes out of the closet and his career, boom, goes to another level. And it becomes um, and a, a catchphrase that he had from a show called, oh my, winds up being this meme that he's got a totally different persona about. And how funny life that is i mean for the longest time he couldn't break the barrier of having done sulu on star trek and it was through the resurgence of the the movies uh the after the the first one was kind of blah uh yeah really blah it was like with steve collins was like blah but when they, they got it back again with the subsequent films um what show did i work with john show then you may be familiar. Uh, you worked on him in one of the Harold and Kumar films. He played his dad. In what show again? One of the it was the uh, one of the Harold and Kumar films, I believe. Oh no, no, you're right, you're right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Harold and Kumar escaped to Guantanamo. Yes, that's the yes. one. Yep. <laughs> that's another interesting one. Is that um, when Harold and Kumar the go to White Castle came out, it kind of was bland in the uh, in the theater um, exhibition. But when they put it on uh, DVDs and cable, I believe, no, maybe DVDs, it just went through the rocket like a moon. It was huge. And I remember putting that in a note. And then they were doing this Harold Kumar escape from Guantanamo. And my agent said, well, they want to see you for this role. It just has one line. I mean, I I don't know if you want to go. And in my head, I'm going, of course I want to go. If it's going to be playing Harold's father, you know, you never know. So it was so... It was so that uh, Harold's mom had a line, there was his father had a line, and there were two other lines in the casting directors. Oh, just read all the lines, okay? And so fine. And so I wound up getting cast, playing uh, the father. We were in Shreveport, Louisiana to shoot. And the two creators were co-directing. And they we were beginning the scene, this is, how about let's just see what happens. Everybody fly. Let's improv the whole scene. You know, we you know the basis. So what you see is basically what we improved. Wow. And we made it better, you know, <laughs> and made it funnier in the whole thing. That's amazing. And, and I did see John that night because he came by to visit and everything like that. That's right. But um, you see where it is. Sometimes you have to ask. I don't have time to go down to Google and to find out. But it's, uh, yeah, you're right. Yes. And thank you very much for being my guide and giving me my prompts <laughs> as to who I what and work that I went with. Yeah. I do my homework on these shows. Uh, oh, you do. Absolutely. That's great. Well, thank and you. I know you're going to cut that thing. So you just keep a little project on that. Yeah. But no. <laughs> yeah. But that's some of the reasons why. So that you become, um, you know, it's like doing, uh, like working with Darren Barnett on Never Have I Ever on Netflix. It was one of those things where my agent said, you know, there's this role of the grandfather to the Paxton, the lead. And I don't know if you've said, of course, you're, I'm familiar with it. It's like a YA show that is like to the roof in popularity. 
And so by doing, I mean, at one point I posted uh, my a photo of Darren and myself, you know, and then publicity and PR and marketing, take it all off, take it off, take any reference of this show off. You're divulging everything. Oh, okay, okay, okay. You're safe to do it after it starts streaming in July. And then when it started streaming in July, it was like, wow. And what it did, I, I, what you realize is that if you keep abreast of what's going on, you can become part of the conversation again. It's almost like people rediscover you in a way. Oh, isn't he the dude that did this? Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember seeing, I remember growing up and watching him in that. How old are you, by the way? You know, that kind of. (laughs) It's Principal Shimada right there. Yeah, Uh, that's Principal Shimada. It's almost like a, a guide to time, you know, sort of like. Oh, yeah, on the family. I remember that guy. Yeah. yeah, that and Ellery Queen and that and Mannix. You know, this and that. And then it's the 80s. And then it's like, oh, Cagney and Lacey. Oh, yeah. Oh, Hawaii Five O. Oh, Magnum PI. Oh, the new Magnum PI. Oh, the new Hawaii Five O. You know, so I mean, I got to do Five O, uh, being having done the original and getting to do the fir- in the first season going back. Yeah, I think and, you're one of the few actors who actually got to be on both the original and the reboot. Oh, was it? Was it I? Have I? Really? Yeah. I, I don't was. think there's been too many others who have done both shows. Ah, that's uh, that's great. I mean, it, sometimes you do it for that reason. And, and the funny thing about it is in the, the current Magnum P.I., the character um, that uh, Tim plays, Tim Kang plays, Gordon Katsumoto, is a character that was created for me in the first Magnum PI that spoke like John Wayne. <laughs> but so they, re- so I was kind of honored that they kept in, they, for this show, for Magnum PI, the new one, they keep the integrity of a lot of the characters that they had before. And they honor it by bringing them back to the show. <clears throat> so I was glad to see that Tim was doing Gordon. Only he doesn't speak like John Wayne. No. He, he's more of the cop. He plays the, the sensibility, like more of it. He's very good, by the way, as well. And I'm very happy for Amy to play uh, Kumu, who's uh, on the show. She's very good at that, too. All right. So, Clyde, real fast, we're coming to the end of this episode here today. Uh, best day ever on a set and the worst day ever on a set. Best day on the set, Paradise Road, working with Glenn Close, singing that song uh, of, of my village to her. Best day. Worst day on the set was in a episode of Get Christy Love, where I was supposed to be, play the police sketch artist and having the director castigate me in front of everybody because I couldn't sketch. He wanted somebody who could sketch. And it had to be a left-handed person. And I went, I'm right-handed. And Mel, Mel Stewart was his name. And Mel was this... Son of a bitch. That's that's all I can say. He really, he just, when you're an object of derision and the whole thing, you're just embarrassed. I think you brought out the worst day that I remember now. Thank you. (laughs) I'm glad I'm doing my job. Uh, (laughs) What is the piece of work that you're most proud of doing? Actually, I'll still go back. Oh, it's a toss up between Paradise Road and Shanghai Surprise. Shanghai Surprise in the comedy section of it all. As a com- uh, in a comic turn, being able to be um, very versatile and uh, create the humor within the character. Paradise Road in allowing me 
um, freedom to develop um, as a dramatic actor in many of the scenes that weren't specifically written, but where your character and you, the actor, create that character. Uh, that's you fill in the space, the unspoken space with your being. That's what Paradise Road allowed me to do in many scenes. Just just listening to the women sing, or or reacting to Kate Blanchett or 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 Glenn Close, and Pauline Collins having a ability and opportunity to develop the scene. I mean, at one point, there's a scene where my character has to take a rifle and shoot at the dog. And I said to Bruce, you want me to shoot at the dog too? You know, but those kind of things to create a full, rich character that shows um, there's a reason why he can be brutal. There's also a reason why the women in real life at the war crimes trial spoke in his defense and how that didn't matter. He was still executed. Whereas he was following the orders of the Kempetai captain and colonel who got away with it and wound up in, in parliament in later on in life. That human, human quality. Yeah. That's, mm-hmm. I'd say that one. What is the best piece of advice that you were given by somebody that you still remember and still use to this day? Hit your mark, be on time, know your lines. That's basically it. Do your homework also. Yeah. Always handy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right, and last thing for today, Clyde, I know we've talked about so many things here, but I got to bring it back to Star Trek, of course, because that's what this show okay. is all about. All right. uh, what's the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? Oh, well, um, it's just being um, that feeling of belonging to a, uh, a world that's become worldwide, internationally popular. You know, it's that you become one of the players or one of the icons. I mean, even the fact that um, I signed a second sh- uh, set of 500 baseball cards or Star Trek cards with the new photos of me as the Admiral, you know, with um, 50 cards saying this, 50%, you know, saying this, but so they would change it up and um, not having to have a codec instrumatic camera to, 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 to uh, validate that I did it. I can just take selfies of myself doing it. No, but that's cool. That's cool. Like my kid, he's like in his 40s now. And he said, look what I got. And he got one of those original cards that I signed years ago that he bought online and everything. Um, that's what's that's what's cool. It's what's cool is the, um, to I remember. There's a, an actor was in uh, The Wire and he's one of his latest films was in uh, uh, It. And he's a good friend of my, my, my sons. And when they were younger in the 10, 15, 20 years ago, he, he would say, I want to be an actor like your dad. And he, my kid would go, huh? What do you mean? The dude works all the time, man. I want to be like that. And I went, oh, that's nice. Because for a long time, I, my son just didn't understand, you know, why couldn't you do this? Why can you? Now it's sort of like, Wow. You did all this? Wow. You know, so that's that's a kind of a, a good thing. And and so being part of the Star Trek universe is great. Being part of the MASH universe is great. Being part of that whole thing, being part of all in the family kind of universe is great. 
the Magnum, you know, universe, all those things. It's kind of, when I think back on it, it's sort of like, it's bloody cool to be associated with iconic shows like that, you know, you know. Well, Clyde, I just want to say thank you so much for being willing to spend this much time with me today. You know, I mentioned at the top of the show, I don't remember if we recorded it or not, but I remember saying how, you know, you were pretty much on that list I had when I very first started this podcast. I had a list of people I wanted to talk to. You uh-huh. were on the top 10 of that list. I had to get you on. It finally oh, wow. happened. And, you know, I don't want to throw this term around, but I mean, you are a living legend. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I've grown up uh, watching you. you. You've been around for really forever and you're still working today, which is amazing. So, you know, really, I'm trying to find words right now, but I'm just full of gratitude for you for being willing to spend this much time to me. I never thought I'd have this opportunity. So really, uh, this means a lot to me. It means a lot to my audience. And I want to just thank you for your beautiful work over the many decades that you've been working and that you continue to work. So I also want to wish you much success as your career continues and uh, as well as another hundred years of sobriety for you. So Clyde, thank you so much. Back at you. Thank you, man. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode of Trek Untold. Until next time, please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you're in a position to financially support the show, please consider becoming a supporter over on patreon.com slash trekuntold or pick up some merchandise from our Redbubble store. If you're looking for direct links for any of these things, links will be right in the show notes. Special thanks to Scott Ray for providing us with this week's guest. If you'd like to book them for an autograph signing or convention appearance, email Scott at scottray67 at aol.com. If you have any questions or comments for the show, or would like to suggest a guest, or discuss any sponsorship ideas with us, send me a message at trekuntold at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to Trek Untold and for continuing to support this show. I hope you'll come back next time to learn more stories about Star Trek and beyond. Until then, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and always remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the RageWorks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.